Guys, I had every intention of coming back from Azerbaijan and uh, finishing up uh, the study of uh, Jonah. I think there are um, three sermons left in Jonah. But, but you know, interesting things happen in, when you're in a country like Azerbaijan. Uh, if you don't know where that is, it's on the Caspian Sea. It's right north of Iran. It shares a border on the, in the south with Iran and on the north with Russia, Georgia on the west and the Caspian Sea on the east. So it's right in a, in a, in a section of the world that is just, I mean, to call it broken is just um, such an understatement. Um, I, I hope to be able to have a chance to tell you about the brokenness, but that'll come later. But, but while there, I, I had thought about what I was going to preach over there, and so I had an idea to, to develop. And I really wrote them while over there. I mean, all morning long, I'm, I'm free to do what I want to do um, in, in uh, Baku. And so I wrote four sermons. I had, I'm, you know, I'd done some work, and I had... And as I, as I thought about the, the idea uh, that I had for Baku... Those, those sermons just kind of morphed into something that I thought were really needed back here. And so instead of finishing up Jonah, I'm going to preach to you the four sermons that I preached in Baku. They've been preached once, uh, once but not here. Um, I, I did not take warmed over sermons to Baku with me. I, I, I wrote these in Baku. And, um, and, and I, I thought that the issues that they address or at least the primary issue, is, is one that would be uh, needed here. So, um, you can turn to Exodus chapter 15, and while you're finding that, let me locate it for you, not, not in your Bibles, but let me locate it for you in the chronology of redemptive history. Uh, stay with me. You know, God has taken Moses and he's brought him back to Israel, excuse me, brought him back to Egypt to get Israel out of Egypt. Remember that? Then you have those 10 plagues, those 10 um, um, plagues in the, in the contest between Moses and Pharaoh. Um, the final plague, of course, is the Passover, where the Passover angel comes and the firstborn are killed. That is Exodus chapter 12. Passover is Exodus 12. Um, Exodus 14, two chapters later is where God delivers Israel from the army of Pharaoh by drowning it in the Dead Sea. Remember that? Dead Sea parts. Uh, Israel goes over dry shod. Pharaoh's army comes in after them, and they're all drowned and killed. That's Exodus 14. I'm reading to you. Well, let me say this uh, real quick, too. Uh, In Exodus 15... The first 21 verses of Exodus 15 is a song. It's a song written by Moses in celebration of their deliverance from the uh, Egyptian army. Uh, It's called Moses' Song. That's the first 21 verses. I want to read you beginning at verse 22. Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Right after the song, we get this. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. 
And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, your God, and do that, which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And they encamped there by the water, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, this word endures forever. Guys, there are, there are three water events in the Old Testament. Uh, Events which have to do with the lack of or non-existence of water. There's the one that I just read you in Exodus 15. There's one that comes in Exodus 17, which is only a chapter away. And then there is one much later in Numbers chapter 20, a water event. The one in Numbers 20 occurs some 40 years after this one that I just read about, I read you about, and the one that we'll look at in a couple of weeks in in chapter 17. Sandwiched in between the first event Exodus 15 that I just read you and Exodus 17, which we'll read you in a couple of weeks is Exodus 16 and Exodus 16, as you may all know, is a very famous event about no bread, no food. It's the story about manna in 16. You have no water in 15. No bread in 16, no water in 17. So we're going to spend four weeks on the issues confronted by Israel associated with those events where water was, water and food were, were the issue. In some ways, guys, all four of these stories confront us with the same big issue. And this is why I thought I need to bring this back to Germantown. All four of these stories confront us with this huge issue, and that is this. Can God be trusted to meet my needs? Gang, we are not talking about wine and caviar in these stories. We're talking about water and bread, not exactly luxury items. They're necessities. Water plus bread equals life. So, the real issue is, can God be trusted with my life? Which we're going to talk about a lot. Each one of these stories contains its own uniquenesses, which I'll concentrate when we get to those stories. But let's get started with story number one. Exodus chapter 15, 22 through 26. What a sequel. What a sequel. A sequel to verses 1 through 21 
in verse in chapter 15. They are three days away from the victory that they just saw God accomplish over the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. Three days. And where's the dancing? Where are the tambourines? Look at, um, look at chapter 15, verse 1. <clears throat> I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Now look at verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses. Um, in uh, the first 21 verses, there is a song on my lips, a tambourine in my hands, and I got dancing feet. And three days later, I'm snarling, I'm grumbling, I'm complaining, I'm murmuring. What am I going to drink? Guys, one of the reasons that this story has such a piercing quality to it is that these folks tell us a bit about what our own hearts are like. Because you and I have a tendency to um, murmur. Don't you love that word? Murmur. You see, what happens here is that there's a wilderness that they're going through and the wilderness on the outside gives them an occasion to get a glimpse of the wilderness that's on the inside. What a, what a sudden change from the sound of tambourines to the sound of grumbling. And it took all of three days, 72 hours. Did did they forget the words of the song? I mean, um, have they already forgotten this, what God did at the Red Sea? You know, I just saw God split the Red Sea right down the middle and, 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 and the whole Egyptian army drowned, and that was three days ago. But what have you done for me today? You know, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? It makes you wonder about the nature of the people who were following Moses in, in a part of this. I mean, why were they in this in the first place? Were they there because of, they wanted to see what they could get out of God? Do people like that really exist? That I'm only in this to see what I can get out of him? No. <clears throat> Where's my water? That question does not have one ounce, one drop of faith in it. You know, back in Egypt, 
back before I got set free, back when I was still in bondage. Oh, there's plenty of water, nice water. Maybe I was better off back in Egypt than I am now having been set free. I mean, I became a Christian and this is what I get. And then Satan whispers in your ear. You were really better off back there. Now let me, let me just pause quickly to make a couple of applications. Ladies and gentlemen, when we left bondage, let me put it like this. When they left bondage, they thought they were going to have one long triumphant march right into the promised land. You know, just like at the Red Sea when God did that thing. That just, yeah, we're just going to march right on into the promised land, you know, victory bound, punt on victory. Wrong. On two counts. First of all, have you ever heard this New Testament text? It's in, it's in uh, uh, Acts chapter 14. It says, by many tribulations, you shall enter the kingdom of God. Did anybody ever tell you that? Jesus did. Did anyone ever tell you to count the cost? Jesus did. You just left bondage when you became a Christian. And then you entered a wilderness. This place, this is a wilderness, ladies and gentlemen, this life where God has promised to meet all of your needs, but there is much challenge that awaits us and it starts early on as a believer, three days into it. Is that what you signed on for? Because if you didn't, you signed on for the wrong thing. You are free in the wilderness. Yes. But you are not yet in the promised land. And I want you to notice this, ladies and gentlemen. The path on which these people find themselves is not the wrong path. It's the right path. It's the God-led path. They are following God and he leads them right smack dab into a wilderness where there's no water. So that difficulty that you're in, God put you there. Why? I don't know. But if somebody didn't tell you about the wilderness before the promised land, they misled you. Here's the other reason that they were wrong. Did you notice in the text the terms of freedom? There are terms. Verse 26, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in the eyes and give ear to the commandments and keep all the statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you. 
the terms of wilderness living is obedience. Grace has set me free. Yes, indeed. Sovereign grace has set me free and it has set me free to obey, not to run wild. You know, folks, when Israel was back in Egypt, nobody said anything to them about statutes and commandments and rules. But now they have been set free by sovereign grace. And they have been set free so that they can obey the God that set them free. Their salvation indeed came first. But after that salvation, there is to be a life that is earmarked by obedience. We have been purchased by sovereign grace. But grace is not lawlessness, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> grace only made me more indebted to God, not less. Righteous, I mean, grace rule, reigns through righteousness, not at the expense of righteousness. Guys, You'll also notice that failure to obey will not, it, won't kick, it won't get you kicked out of the kingdom. But you may experience some of those diseases and those plagues. So here it is, ladies and gentlemen. Here's the summation of the Christian life. Are you ready for it? It's pretty simple. Here it is. Set free to travel through a wilderness earmarked by an obedient life on my way to the holy land, on my way to the promised land. There it is. Set free into a wilderness to obey on my way to the promised land. That's it. And that's what you see in this story. Now, I gotta hasten on. As for God... What is he up to? Did you notice it? It's in verse 25. Um, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. Ladies and gentlemen, did you know that God does that to us? He tests us. Um, if you want, I mean, I've got all kinds of texts here you can have afterwards, but you know, the biggie is in Genesis, the most well-known one, is in uh, Genesis 22, where it says that in God tested Abraham and said, go take Isaac and sacrifice him on a mountain that I'll tell you about. That was God testing Abraham. Um, now, to be clear, how does God do that? Is there some kind of um, written exam or oral recitation? No, no, of course. The way that he tests us is through circumstances. Putting us in situations where a man can get, for the first time, perhaps in a long time, a glimpse of the condition of his own heart. Because, ladies and gentlemen, we're big talkers. You want to know where I find out the most about my heart? In the traffic on Poplar. 
And I see things spewing out of that thing and I think, I didn't know that was still in there. Do you know that the psalmist, David, he even, he requests it. He says, search me, O God, and know my ways. He invites divine inspection. And that divine inspection is taking place in the test. To find out what? Well, I can only tell you this in Genesis 22. This is what's said. And now I know, Abraham, that you fear me. Okay, so in the midst of the test, here's what we're trying to find out. Will we obey him? Will we trust him? Do we love him? Can I really trust him to meet my needs? And ladies and gentlemen, God already has an answer to those questions. It's us that don't have the answers, but we're going to find out. Because God is going to test us through circumstances. You know, there's a, um, there's a portion of the whole story about Abraham. It, it shows up in the New Testament where... Um, where Jesus says in John 8, I think it's verse 56, Jesus says, and Abraham saw my day and rejoiced and was glad. Tell me, where did Abraham see Jesus' day? I'll tell you where he saw it. He saw it on the top of Mount Moriah in the midst of the test. And do you know what he saw up there? Do you know what happened in the midst of that test? Oh my goodness, he was drawn closer to the Savior. In the midst of this horrible set of circumstances, the end result is that he got to see Jesus more clearly. And so will you. I hope that'll help you. Because when you're in one of those tests, I'm struggling simply to keep my nose above the water. But it's there where you're going to be drawn. Because you see, tests not only prove, they improve. And they ought to improve. Maybe... Maybe after yours is over, you can say too, and Jimmy saw my day and rejoiced and was glad. Because God is going to put his people in tests. Just like he's doing here. Now, one final thing, or one final point. How does the bitter water become sweet in this story? Through a tree. A tree. (laughs) Of all places, in a desert. 
we're told in the story that Moses prays and the Lord shows him a tree. How in the world could he miss it? It's the only one out there. Folks, I, I've been to this wilderness before. So have many of you. And we're going back, Lord willing, in March. You've never seen a wilderness like this before. There's a tree out there and Moses missed it. So when he prays, God shows him the tree. He takes the tree, throws it in the water, and the water sweeten. And so in that, you get a glimpse of how it is, or the, the, you get a glimpse of the power of God to sweeten the bitter. How does he do that? Through a tree. And I hope you can see it. But this little story is pointing us all to the universal remedy of a dying Savior. On a tree. My brother and sister in Christ, your pain at this moment or your pain to come is not punishment for sin. It can't be. It can't be punishment because it's already been punished once. It's not going to be punished again. But that's the, that's the default mode of every believer. Things get hard and we say, what am I being punished for? But your pain is not supposed to do that to you. What it's supposed to do, hopefully, is to show you a tree. On which hangs the Lord Jesus Christ. Where sin was punished. When I read that word Mara in the text, it appears there three times. Did you, did anything, did it ring a bell at all? Because the word Mara is found elsewhere in the Old Testament. Um, it's found, at, at least to my knowledge, only one other place, but it's found another place in, in the Old Testament. It's in an old, another Old Testament story. It's the story about Ruth. You remember that? Ruth was married, had two boys, and because of a famine, she moves out of uh, Israel over into Moab uh, to escape the famine. And while uh, in Moab, her husband dies, her two sons die. And so she comes back to uh, Israel, hearing that the famine is now gone. And she comes into Bethlehem, and all of her friends are saying, Hello, Naomi. And she says, Don't call me Naomi. Mara because I'm bitter is that what your circumstances have done to you disillusioned you you thought you raised your kids in a different way and then they didn't turn out the way you thought you raised them. And you thought that, you know, going to church and getting them in the youth group is going to, is going to insulate you from 
parental or pain or marital pain or something like that, and now you're bitter? I thought if I gave a little money to the church that all my financial woes would be over. Didn't work out that way. And so now, don't call me Naomi! Call me bitter. My brother and sister in Christ, there is a provision. But there's only one of them. There's a provision for your bitterness. And it's a tree. Though these circumstances that you are experiencing may be bitter, they can make you better. How? Because the the only way that the bitter gets sweetened is when we get driven to a tree. Did you notice these last few, this last sentence? The healing of that bitter water is a parable of which this is the lesson. I am the Lord who heals you. I can indeed be trusted to meet your needs. And the biggest need that you have is something that would meet the need created by your sin. What will do that? What could possibly meet the need created by my sin? A tree. Oh, my brother and sister in Christ, never forget. We have a tree. We have a tree. And through that tree, the bitter becomes sweet. And if you were here this morning without a Savior, you have no tree. And it's all bitter. And in eternity, it will become more bitter. Our Father, um, we are lovers of your word. And I thank you for the privilege that is mine to get to
somehow illustrate it to make it to make it say to us what was intended and oh I pray oh God that that has happened this morning might your people leave with an understanding like never before that the only way anything bitter will ever become sweet is through a tree on which the Prince of Glory has died. Might he be seen this morning in all of his beauty? We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.